Hello, pod pals. Welcome back to Best Girl Grip, the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. I am your host, Nicole Davis. I realise I often say welcome back under the assumption that you are a returning listener. Um, but if you are new here and have been lured to the podcast by my lovely guest, hello. Uh, I hope you like what's in store. I'm going to keep this intro fairly short because the interview is pretty long and for good reason. Um, my guest today is incredibly eloquent and has lots to say, so it was just such a thrill to have her on and ask her lots of questions. Um, so without further ado, my guest uh, this week is Anna Bogatskaya. For context, um, I think I've just thrown <laughs> I think I've just thrown the notion of a short intro out the window with those two words. Um, but anyway, um, for context, Anna used to work at the BFI around the same time that I was there, and I believe I'm right in thinking she was the youngest programmer at the BFI South Bank at the time. Uh, not of all time, uh, although that might also be true. Anyway, all this to say, I always admired Anna from afar, and she always used to put on, you know, great programs and seasons that I would I would go to, um, and I would sort of see her up on the stage interviewing filmmakers, and would just kind of be in awe and think that was incredibly cool. Um, you know, she was always she always seemed incredibly ambitious and accomplished, and I just thought that what she was doing, both within the BFI and outside of it, was refreshing and almost revolutionary in that she was often putting women directed cinema and indie filmmaking front and center um which is just something i don't think i'd seen much of um prior to that anna is currently a freelance film programmer broadcaster writer and creative producer uh, she's also the co-founder of the horror film collective the final girls and festival director of underwire festival where best girl grip had its first live outing as mentioned, she was previously the film and events programmer at the British Film Institute, where she curated many seasons, and also created the Women with a Movie Camera Summit, which we talk about quite in depth. Uh, we also go deep into the principles and considerations that uphold Anna's programming ethos, and all the aspects that go into designing a film season. We talk about her decision to go freelance, uh, the other avenues it's allowed her to pursue, and how she manages her schedule. And fittingly, we also wax lyrical about podcasts, of which Anna, you know, is a bit of an expert. She's hosted uh, the BFI, or co-hosted, I should say, the BFI's one called The Bigger Picture. She has a podcast um, for the Final Girls Collective. And she also co-hosts a podcast with uh, former podcast guest Clarice Lockery uh, about American Horror Story called The Next Supremes. I'm hugely grateful to Anna for coming on the podcast and sharing her wisdom, of which there is a lot, so do tuck in. This is episode 73 of Best Girl Grip. I always like to start with these podcasts is getting a sense of kind of how you first came into the film industry and whether you went to university and what you studied there if you did. I did go to university. I had a very roundabout way before I understood that the film industry was actually an industry that I could um, work in as opposed to just like films and be obsessed with films. So I actually first studied graphic design and illustration in London at CSM. And then I went back to Spain, where I'm from. So I went to Madrid, which is not where I grew up, and did journalism. And then about halfway through my first week, realized that I had made a terrible mistake and that actually all I wanted to do was be a film critic. And that was not really a thing that you could study, like film studies was not a thing that really existed in the Spanish educational system. So the closest thing was probably broadcast journalism. And I 
one, I started kind of trying to change my quote unquote major. That's not the right word, but it's the closest thing. And then I got it into my head to that I wanted to study in Paris. So I got a scholarship to go to Paris to study at the Sorbonne. And that was pure, hardcore film studies. It was the best educational experience of my life. It was like spending four months analyzing a single frame from an Antonioni film. Made me hate Antonioni, but still just the most glorious experience for a young cinephile. Just going to see old movies all the time. So, so much cinema and so much of it was so accessible. Entire libraries dedicated to film studies, to film history and theory. So I was just in heaven. And it was sort of a combined MABA program. So I was studying kind of quite many different approaches into cinema and very much kind of from a French perspective. So that was probably the the thing that solidified my ambitions of I just want to I just want to think and write and talk about film I don't know whether this is a job but let's let's try to figure it out and I became very narrow-minded in a sense I just want to work in film I don't want to do anything else maybe write maybe write about film ideally and was extremely pretentious when I came back to Madrid and (laughs) I like I I'm not even I'm not even joking. I was such an obnoxious little twat. I basically got a scholarship uh, for an MA in Madrid because I annoyed my professor so much that she was like, "Would you like to do this MA program that's specifically about a uh, film that's specifically film studies and really much kind of veering into the um, the industry side of things." And <laughs> So essentially, I became kind of this, this, I was in this really fortunate position where in the last year of my BA, I was also doing my first MA. So it was a really, really intense year, but it meant that I expedited my education. So I essentially saved a year of my life. And from that MA, I met one of my one of the guest lecturers was somebody who worked for um, Pedro and Agustino Almodovar's production company, El Deseo. And they offered me an internship from that MA. And I got another job kind of from another lecturer from that MA. So I kind of left before I even finished my both my degrees. I had two, one internship that turned into a full-time job at LSAO and another part-time job working at Filmin, which is essentially like a... It, they've been going on for about 11 years now. It was essentially like a Spanish movie slash Netflix. So it's a digital streaming service, very curated, very, very cool, massive catalog that kind of kept growing um, exponentially while I was there. And since then, it's a really, really great company. So yeah, I kind of got those opportunities and have not stopped working since. <laughs> I mean, it's funny, you called it pretentiousness, but I imagine it also just gave you a confidence, like that background in this kind of rich cinematic landscape. And it's something that a lot of people say, oh, you know, I, I didn't know that much about film coming in. Did you feel that sense of belonging because you had that, you know, like, I know what I'm talking about, or I, I at least, you know, know some of the canon. Do you feel like it gave you that? Uh, it definitely did. If anything, um, my my own relationship and my love for cinema is something that I've always been extremely aware of. I was just obsessed ever since I was a kid. Like since I was six or something, I basically watched everything I could. Uh, and especially I watched a lot of old Hollywood stuff. So a lot of what we call the canon, I had already kind of been watching and essentially memorizing it. I would play, I'm an only child, so I played games with myself <laughs> where I just... <laughs> 
<laughs> recite. Exactly. So it's like, you know, you know what it's like? You have to learn to entertain yourself and you're never bored when you're by yourself. So I just played games with myself where I would memorize filmmakers' names and um, basically information about movies. And that came very in handy when I actually studied cinema. So by the time I came to actually being in those environments, I was never questioning my own knowledge at all. There was never a sense of I don't know enough. There's always a, a desire to know more. And I'm not talking about a kind of an, an arrogant way of I know everything there is because I don't, absolutely not. But I was kind of combined with the youthful arrogance that I was feeling at the time and this kind of really, really burning desire to just be surrounded by film, be surrounded by filmmakers. I was very clear from the beginning that I was not a director. I wasn't trying to make films. I wanted to, I didn't have the language to articulate it at the time, but what I knew really strongly is that I wanted to be the person that would connect audiences with films and that would try to talk about films that people had not discovered yet. I didn't really, there wasn't like much of a of a scene, of a film scene, definitely not one that you could very easily feel like you belong to in Madrid. But I did kind of start moving around in those environments and meeting people and just was just a fan and a fan that loved just talking about movies. And I was always kind of coming up with things and ideas and I didn't quite know how to make them happen. But that enthusiasm was always there and I was never sort of shy of putting my hand up and talking about films or giving my opinion or almost knowing kind of in those situations that that knowledge should come in handy in some way even if it was just to work with people who I thought were really interesting or who were really respected like all, all my bosses and and at LDSEO and at Filmin I thought they were amazing and I just wanted to kind of watch them work and learn from them. Mm. And then you mentioned that you had an interest in kind of film criticism. And I'm wondering, once you got your start in film, you know, working with production companies, how did you then pursue that passion? You know, was that something that you were kind of always, you know, trying to get more opportunities at or in? Well, to be honest, my, when I was in university, the only thing I wanted to do was to write about film. I just wanted to be a film critic. And however, there was never a sense of that being a possibility because, and again, things that I didn't realize now in hindsight, there's a very particular type of film critic that I had grown up reading and watching, at least in the Spanish language, and I was never going to be one of them. So that kind of whole memorizing of films and kind of uh, understanding and trying to know all the canon, all the films that quote-unquote were supposed to know and of all the film filmmakers that we were supposed to like was what I was striving for until I realized that actually that's not that interesting and maybe I don't have much more to say about Antonioni that hasn't been said already but I do have a lot of things to say about other types of films and there was also quite a few instances where because I'm I'm Spanish but I was always an, I'm a child of immigrants so there was always that quite you're not allowed to speak in public about things because your name doesn't sound Spanish enough and your voice doesn't sound Spanish enough it's changing quite a bit now, but there was always that sense of you're not really going to get opportunities because there is always going to be that doubt of are you able to communicate because we don't understand that you actually do understand the language and you can communicate in that language, if that makes sense. Yeah, that must have been tricky. Yeah, and I remember even at one point in university, I was really hoping for an internship at a radio 
place um, at a radio placement that one of our professors was kind of cherry picking his top students from my class. And I was I was one of his top students and he kind of bypassed me. And I remember asking him why. And he literally looked me in the eye and put on a really intense Russian accent and said that I could never do radio because I sounded like that, which I don't. I don't have a Russian accent, but that was quite, yeah, quite a slap in the face, to be honest. So I kind of put that aside and I started becoming really interested in the industry side of things, how films actually got made, how films got seen, the power plays that go on behind the scenes of how does anything actually happen outside of a film just being wonderful and then maybe disappearing? Like, what are the maneuvers behind that? So I really wanted to understand the why certain things become the way they are. Why are certain people producers? What are they like? What do they actually do? How does, you know, how do filmmakers live? Is it just like a passion thing? Like, how does the industry work? I just wanted to understand all the mechanics of it. So I really wanted to look at all the different aspects, basically all the life cycle of a film and try to, on the one hand, personally, just find my place in it and the things that worked for me. And also understand as much as it possibly could. So I could, while I was figuring out what I really wanted to do, have as much knowledge as possible of the things that really in the industry are not explained. You know, you can't, they're not written down. They're essentially learned on the job. You learn by meeting people, by talking to people, by doing things yourself, by making mistakes. Yeah, totally. And how did that hunger for knowledge lead you to programming? You know, do you remember the point at which you discovered that that was a thing and that you were interested in it? Yes, it's it's really funny you should ask it because I was thinking about this before we started recording. And there's two things to it. So there's the stuff that I now remember I instinctively felt that that was a thing that I wanted to do and I didn't quite know what it was. And it was because I was always obsessed with the Prince Charles cinema. When I lived in London as a 17-year-old, as a I was painfully shy and I had no money. So I would just go to the Prince Charles all the time during the day and in between my, my classes and workshops and stuff like that because it was a pound or a pound and a half for students. And I very distinctly kind of remember all of these different events that they put on. I'd never been to stuff like that before. Then when I was living in Madrid, I was really trying to put on something with a group of friends. And we were really inspired by places like the Prince Charles. Like we would just look at the program online and be thinking, it's like, why can't we do that here? Why doesn't this exist here? And it was really hard because there wasn't that sort of sense of language or even you cinemas just didn't get what we wanted to do when we contacted them. They were just, are you, are you trying to hire us? I don't understand. So actually, when I started to understand the full breadth and power of programming was when I moved to London again and I started working for the then director of the London Film Festival, Claire Stewart, as her assistant. And it was just, you know, she's a powerhouse of film exhibition and powerhouse film festival director. So just watching her work and being around her and, and assisting her was just a huge, unbelievable masterclass in everything that programming involved. The negotiations, the 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 thinking, the knowledge, the the interviewing, the dealing with with talent, with filmmakers, the dealing with the industry side, like all of those different as aspects of it. And suddenly it was like a, a light bulb moment. I mean, it was a light bulb moment in, a, in slow motion, but suddenly I realized there was this thing that was a profession that was so exciting that was tapping into that connection of films and audiences and of being able to relate and help filmmakers get their film seen and of really tapping into all the 
the industry politics and the industry power plays that seemed so interesting to me, but that never really, I didn't really know how to apply those to anything. So suddenly, and especially working with someone like Claire, who's such an incredible mind, it was, it just made me think that that was something that was possible as well as something that I wanted to do. I started learning the the language to articulate those ideas and how to articulate my own ambitions. And just being in London, there was also so many people who were just open. There are so many spaces, there are so many things happening just because people wanted to make them happen, that they wanted, they wanted those experiences to exist. I started meeting people just from that were just interested in in creating events and in creating spaces and in programming things and started trying out stuff, doing really wacky projects like putting on a film festival in a warehouse where I was living at that time in North London. <laughs> so I did, a, I did a lot of things that were essentially me trying out and flexing certain programming muscles and learning the language and learning how to articulate my own ideas. And training myself essentially for all those things that I knew would become or are important for programming. But behind that, it was like, how do I think about a program? How do I think about it? How do I communicate it to an audience? How do I distill all the things that I'm obsessed with or I'm interested in? And how do I make those into things that make sense for an audience? And I became, as I was thinking through my own process, I became very interested in in just how to communicate cinephilia basically and how to articulate it in a way that was not pretentious and in a way that was not closing off people but rather make it inaccessible and thinking always trying to think always thinking really hard and thinking really widely and thinking empathetically more than anything so very much outside of my own personal interests and my own tastes I really 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 think that programming is mostly an exercise in empathy and that it should never be just about your own taste because if it is you're just a narcissist (laughs) it's just about the things that you like and you want to make people like the things that you like I'm much more interested in trying to connect something that I think will resonate with audiences even if I'm not that particular audience Mm, that's such a important point and I mean we'll come back because I think it's so important to, to think about how we contextualize and communicate a program and I'm, I'm really excited to delve into that but first let's frame it with you your kind of your rise through the BFI um, so was your first job as assistant to Claire that was within the BFI and how did you progress to becoming a programmer there that was uh, that was my first job in London this time around, my first job at the BFI. And I, by the way, knew no one in London or the BFI. And I just applied, just applied. I just applied. And so after that job, I after that job ended, I went off to somewhere else and kind of did more marketing-based jobs. I actually came back to the BFI working in digital marketing. So I was the person doing all the tweets and the social media and all that stuff for about a year. And I I kind of went freelance for a bit because I went back to school. I went to the NFTS to do another postgrad. And when that was happening, I saw I saw a programming job come up at the BFI. And again, just wildly, boldly applied for that and got it. So it was, I wasn't planning on going back to being into a full-time role. But as with, well, as I very much know now, programming jobs, full-time programming jobs are exceedingly rare. And there was, it was just an opportunity that I couldn't miss. And it was a job that, um, it was at that time called the the events programmer job. And 
it was it seemed interesting it seemed like a challenge and it also seemed something that naturally fit the sort of things that i wanted to to try to do so it's a very unsexy answer because i just i saw a job ad i applied i did a couple of interviews and I got the job. <laughs> I think that's the sexiest answer, Anna, because like that's the way it should be, is that, you know, rather than, oh, a friend told me about it or, you know, I got headhunted. You know, it sounds glamorous, <laughs> but that's that's the way it should be, that you just see it, you apply and you, you best all the other applicants. And so I'd love to, yeah, now use this opportunity to dig into what the responsibilities are and how you even begin to put together a program, you know, from idea generation stage where you're just talking about what would be a cool season to, to bringing all those elements together mm-hmm. that you were talking about, the kind of the negotiation, the communication, um, how you order the films that you're selecting. Um, if you can distill that into an answer, um, yeah, take the floor. <laughs> I can distill it into a single word for you, Nicole. Spreadsheets. <laughs> no, uh, I joke, but I don't joke. There's... There's always, uh, as with any job, I think, I think programming is is intensely interesting because there's there's no right answer for it. I have my own approach to it. Um, I'm in awe of other programmers that do really interesting work uh, around the world in very different ways. Um, I think there's kind of key personality traits that are useful, like banks of knowledge that are really useful, but never ultimately necessary. I think it's, if you're thinking kind of about it from the beginning, like how to start, I think the one thing that you should always think about is kind of work backwards. So what are you programming for? As in, what is the setting or what is the format? Is it a film season? Is it a event? Is it a multi-tiered event? Is it a film festival? Is it an immersive experience? So kind of what is the shape of it? And there's something that I really like looking into, and I'm I'm not a designer by any stretch of the imagination, but I do like reading quite a lot of stuff about kind of design theory of how designers and artists and visual thinkers work. And one of the things, the terms that I keep coming back to, and this um this amazing woman called Nelly Benayoun has actually spoken a lot about and has done a lot of work on it is design of experiences. So that's the way that I always try to frame it in my head. It's like, what is the experience that I'm going to try to deliver to audiences? I think just thinking about programming is like putting people in a cinema and popping a, a film on a screen is quite boring. So I'm always trying to think, it's like, what is the whole thing? And I think programming is the whole thing from what is the name of the project, the season, the event, whatever it is. Where is it taking place? What kind of cinema? What kind of space? What is the price point? Like that determines the the flavor of it. What is the artwork like? What is the communications like? As in, what is the copy like? How do people buy tickets? How do you present it? How quickly? Like, how are you essentially taking people from learning about this event or this project to actually getting out like getting out of the venue and all those steps in between have to be designed by you the programmer so you maybe that's my own control freak nature but i think the true interesting programming kind of comes from being able to help audiences navigate from the very point of like i don't know what this is what is this tell me what it is convince me to go to this place to enjoy this film or experience or program or festival to them leaving the auditorium or the space and having a conversation about it how are you facilitating that how are you um, archiving that how are you documenting it like all of those different steps and some of them are not as sexy as you know coming up with 
pithy titles and interviewing filmmakers on stage, some of them are thinking, how am I communicating this via the price? How are people actually buying tickets? How are people getting to becoming aware of this thing happening? All of that is part of the process. You have to be able to essentially connect an experience with an audience. And all of those parts are programming. And then there's elements there, of course, of what is the idea? So how are you? Why now? Why you? Who's the voice behind it? Who should be on stage? What is going to be the shape of it? Is it going to be just a screening? Is it going to be a retrospective? Is it a curated season? What are you trying to say? I think the most important questions for me when thinking about a program is like, why now? So why does it need to exist now? Does it need to exist in two years? Is it? Do, do I need to spend some more time thinking about it? Is it an online thing? Is it a, a physical thing? Is it an event? Is it something that needs contextualizing by a person? Who should that person be? One of the important things to to think about as a program is try not to fall into the um, the narcissistic trap of since I came up with the idea or since I'm doing the program or the copy or anything like that, or if I'm designing the whole experience, I must be the person representing everything. It's not always that way. Sometimes the the best programming comes from letting people have the stage and letting people have the space because they're the ones who actually have something to say about it. I don't think kind of reciting bibliographical information or filmographic information about a film makes it interesting. <laughs> I'm much more interested in in creating an experience that will actually help people connect with the film or films that I'm showing them or with the experience. And sometimes, and sometimes that's not you as the programmer. And you actually have to step away or step aside and help someone else create that context that you're trying to present to audiences. Then there's the practical stuff. So you were hinting at before, um, there's the negotiation, there's the film rights, there's the materials, all of that comes into play. Some of it is is quite simple, really, um, very mystified by many people, but essentially it's emails, it's spreadsheets, it's try- trying to haggle with people to lower the price, trying to um, pay everyone as much as you can, if you can pay people, trying to make formats work, uh, praying to all the gods to, that the DCP or the print does not fail, that the projector does not eat the print. So <laughs> there's a lot of kind of practical stuff like that. And so thinking about some of the questions that you kind of raised there that you you look to answer when you're putting together a program, I'd love to sort of frame that specifically through one of the seasons that you put on. I mean, one of my particular favourites that you did at the BFI was the girlfriend season, um, sort of framed around Claudia Wilde's girlfriends. But thinking about, you know, like what your ambitions were as a programmer and what you wanted to achieve within the framework of the BFI, because obviously the BFI is an institution and so you've got a very established audience, but then you're also wanting to bring in new people and new audiences and so how are those two kind of competing ideas working in relation to yeah girlfriends or fierce or any of the others that's a really interesting question and girlfriends i should point out was co-curated with isabel stevens from sight and sound and myself and that was probably one of the first seasons that i did and i'm really happy that i did it with isabel as well because the central thesis of that season was about female friendship and not to sound too corny, but we became friends through the process of putting that season on together. But I think the main thing was always marrying the demands of an institution and marrying my ideas that I thought could work within that frame. So there's stuff that I've always wanted to do that was just not appropriate for that space for different reasons. 
timing, flavor, bankability, as in like, will this work financially for audiences or is this just too niche an idea or is the space the right one? I mentioned kind of thinking about the space and with the freelance programming that I've done uh, alongside my work at the BFI and since then I've been always thinking about where does this actually fit the audiences that come with a particular space or venue and also what are you what are you saying by putting that particular program in that space? Obviously, there's many, many benefits to working in an institution like the BFI, namely the the gravitas that comes with it, the the marketing and the, and the research power that comes with it as well. The fact that there's an entire amazing team dedicated to finding and locating prints and rights and being able to, you know, source the rarest and the weirdest of things. And and one of my key things was always to try to bring in new audiences. It was to really, I, I always thought even, I didn't grow up here. So my relationship with the BFI is as an adult and as work as very much kind of framed by working there. But I always thought that it was a shame that people think that the BFI is a stuffy place because it's not. I always just thought it's just such a a church for cinephiles and the ability to watch so much stuff like it need not be unaccessible. And I think with these programs like Girlfriends, uh, like Fierce, which is all about Jane Crawford, like um, like Playing the Bitch, there was so many repertory screenings that I did. And that was really important to me. I love film history. I'm obsessed with it. I wanted to make sure that it wasn't just old white dudes putting on old films, essentially. If it was interesting there was ways of framing repertory cinema and there was fra- ways of framing film history that could be accessible and interesting and dynamic and could tap into real contemporary conversations. I think that's the thing that maybe articulates my thoughts kind of in, to answer your question is trying to marry this perceived stuffiness with real life more zeitgeisty conversations, things that were important to people from our generation, things that might be important to people who are different from myself or different from my then colleagues and trying to connect them. And also then to trying to bring in new people onto that stage. That Those stages at the BFI mean a lot to a lot of people. The amount of filmmakers that I've, you know, either interviewed or have you kind of talked to or been able to work with that were in, intimidated by the NFT one stage because of the the legacy and the gravitas that it carries. That's not to be dismissed easily. So putting on something like Rami and Michelle's high school reunion on the NFT one screen carries a certain baggage or even putting on a screening of Get Out, which took me like months to <laughs> negotiate, was like it becomes meaningful because they're essentially proving the point that those spaces are for everyone and that there is not a not a thing as a you know quote-unquote bfi audience and there's no such thing as like those spaces being prohibitive to people who want to enjoy claudia wilde's girlfriends as much as they want to enjoy Romy michelle's high school reunion or to people who want to enjoy get out as much as they want to enjoy the cinema of andres vagansev if some audiences contain multitudes, so you can enjoy all of those things and take different things from all of them. I kind of I like to think that I got the chance to work with so many different types of seasons and put on seasons that were extremely niche, 
very esoteric, some of them provocative, some of them a lot more kind of, you know, uh, traditional in a sense, but even stuff like Fears, which is all about the cinema of John Crawford, one of the greatest classic Hollywood stars of all time. I was still really enamored with the idea of doing something about John Crawford because I thought she was so incredibly interesting and very much like the Madonna of her time. And you could make her contemporary and you could make her interesting for people who might not necessarily want to watch a woman's face as much as I want to. And you're so right. Like I I have such a striking image in my head of the artwork from that season and and like the Ida Lupino season. And um, they always did such a good job, as you say, of making it feel very contemporary and very relevant. And I mean, this is this is probably going to be very difficult to answer, but I'm wondering if you have a, a moment uh, that is your proudest one from programming at the BFI. There's many, but I want to say I want to I want, probably the first really proud moment was Valentine's Day. And for several reasons. So that was part of the girlfriend season. And I like dug my heels in to do a Galentine's Day thing around Rami Michelle's high school reunion. I think this was also, and I mentioned kind of my own relationship with Cinephilian and my love for film before. Part of the my own internal process of becoming a programmer and like feeling much more confident in, in finding my, my voice and my way of working was in re-educating myself as to what good film is and part of it was completely shedding that idea of that binary of there's good films and then there's guilty pleasures and then there's stuff that I like but that isn't as interesting or as good or as smart bullshit so part of that process was also kind of uh, curating stuff for the BFI that kind of tried to marry those two angles and I to go back to Valentine's Day, I spent about six months convincing everyone that was not not, not a typo. <laughs> it did not mean Valentine's Day. It was Valentine's Day and it was only the best day of the year. They clearly haven't seen Parks and Recreation if they weren't. Clearly. <laughs> <laughs> and I think Robert Michelle's High School Reunion is a fantastic film and I've seen it so many times. And we did a whole party about it. And, you know, there was a space for people to go up to the Blue Room afterwards, have a snack, chat about the film have a ton of kind of Instagram traps where people could take pictures. It was very much a celebration of female friendships. It was very much bringing a girlfriend, have a lovely time. And it was seeing, it was almost completely full. And it was seeing Rami Michelle's High School Reunion, my favorite films that I had always kind of kept hidden. And seeing it on the screen, seeing how deeply the audience reacted to it. Like people, I'd never seen this film with another person before in my life I'd always seen it by myself and then as I was watching from the back people watch it which sounds really creepy but it's something that you <laughs> that you do a lot when you put on screenings I was texting with uh with the screenwriter of the film and talking to her about how people were reacting to it and she was so pleased because she was skyping in from the states to do a post-screening Q&A and it was essentially me with a laptop on stage, but it was such a beautiful moment to see people react, to be able to tell a filmmaker, a, a screenwriter, it was very much her baby, to tell her that 25 years on, this film was connecting with audiences on the other side of the, of the ocean and hearing people react and connect to the film as well. It's gorgeous. It's a gorgeous feeling. 
Yeah, and it comes back to that thing as well, like you were saying earlier about kind of connecting all the puzzle pieces that go into a sort of a film's life cycle. And it's not just about putting it on for audiences, but it's about kind of bringing bringing the filmmaker back to that moment and and showing the legacy that 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 film has had. And also another, I mean, another event that you programmed there that I I loved and I think you know has a legacy. I mean, hopefully it comes back next year. I know it kind of had to be postponed because of the pandemic this year. But you masterminded the woman with a movie camera summit. So thinking along, you know, this idea of bringing people into the BFI space that maybe they didn't think it was for them. Can you maybe talk me through how you came up with that idea? You know, what was the ambition for that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'm really flattered that you use the word masterminded. That's really sweet. <laughs> so I'd been, uh, by the point that the first Women with the Movie Camera Summit had happened, which was 2018, I had been curating the, it was a monthly strand. So the, uh, again, a, a bit of history kind of that title the woman with the movie camera thing kind of started from a, an issue of sight and sound that i believe isabel also led on a few years before then and then it became a, a strand a recurring monthly strand at the bfi south bank so i took over that uh, shortly after i started there as a programmer and kind of it was a monthly strand you know you, you have one slot a month it's women's cinema women's contribution to cinema old new things whatever kind of floated my boat that month or whatever made sense and I started thinking, and this was around the time that Galen, Galen Gould started as the head of cinemas and events as well, and her openness and creativity as well was very, very inspiring and very instrumental in thinking harder and wider about my programming. And I use those words kind of very deliberately. And I started thinking about multi-tiered events. So the way that we think about events in cinema spaces is quite simplistic sometimes. You pop on a film... People sit down, they watch the film, someone comes on on stage, they talk for 15, 20, 30 minutes, and then they leave and everyone leaves. Fine. So I was trying to think about what can we do that could be an experience. And there was a, another event that I did before the Woman with the Movie Camera Summit called The Big Thrill, which was essentially a pilot for this. And it was part of a, a BFI blockbuster called Thriller. And it was all exploring, it was kind of small events going on in different spaces around South Bank, uh, exploring different aspects to thriller films. And it was very much responding to a brief as opposed to coming up with something myself. But one of the things that Gillian was really interested in and that she made me really, really think hard about was how to use the space and how to make this, transform the space and make the space accessible and also change it. Because the BFI South Bank is a weird as hell space. It's got all these different nooks and crannies. It's got all these corridors. Like, I love it. It's amazing because it's so fucking weird. It's just this wonderful maze where there's a weird forgotten cupboard with... <laughs> with old prints or old posters of stuff that are all signed by incredible people. So just the, the weirdest, most incredible space for, for a film fan. And I remember thinking, like, there's so many things that could be happening at the same time. Like, we, I wanted to have the building buzzing. And I wanted to bring in more women and more younger women to it. It's like, well, how do you do that? Uh, that's not just putting on films. So I started kind of thinking about themes and the main theme that I wanted to explore and I had kind of a central theme for the two, um, for every summit that I programmed and kind of was thinking backwards, like, well, I wanted to explore power and I wanted to explore kind of, it was around the the time that the Me Too conversation was really, really kicking off and all of these different kind of wide and intense and deep and provoking conversations and realizations were happening about the role of women and the history of the role of women in the in the film industry. And I was thinking like, right, what can we, what can we do about this? How can we explore all the different aspects of the negotiation of power 
by and for women in the film industry. What spaces do we have? So I literally made a list when I made a spreadsheet of all the different spaces of the BFI Southland. Like, how, what can I put in there? What can happen in there? How can I activate it? How can I make the black box of the cinema into something that's more invigorating and exciting? How can I how can I make people who've never come to the BFI South Bank come to the BFI South Bank? And how can I make them interact with the idea of being a woman in film without just putting the same producers on stage and the same people who are always on the BFI stage talking about what it means to be, how hard it is to be a woman in the industry. So I started just thinking about all the different questions that I had. Every single event, there was about 30 events happening in the span of eight hours in the summit. Every single event was kind of a question and a prompt that I was thinking about, like, what about this? What about this? What about this angle? And designed it. And, and with the help of my my then colleague, Bethan, who was the then New Forms programmer. So her background is very much was in um, kind of exhibitions and live events as well. And she was not a film person. She was very much an arts person. So we worked a lot together on her working on animating the spaces in between the cinemas and in bringing in different types of interactive things like people doing games installations and kind of um, live fake tattooing and um, nails and stuff like that like every single nook and cranny of the space that we could put something on we would have an event happening there and it was all happening at the same time so I essentially designed it like a music festival with different mini stages and it every and everything was happening concurrently so you kind of had to create your own event you would have this map you'd have this menu of options and there was things going on simultaneously in different spaces. So every every person who would come to that day would have to pick and choose. And it was it was always going to be a completely different experience for every single person who came that day because you would always necessarily miss out on stuff. Oh, hearing that is just, yeah, such a beautiful way of um, putting it and thinking about it. And you're right, you hit the nail on the head, I think, when you said that you wanted the building to be buzzing, because that was exactly the energy I think that I got from being in that room with so many, as you say, yeah, young women, but older women as well. And just this sense of possibility, I think um, it was, yeah, really, really well executed. So thank you for that. <laughs> it was, uh, it was extremely fun and grueling. And then obviously you left the BFI, I think I want to say last year, but correct me if I'm wrong. And I'm wondering, um, you know, why did you decide that, you know, that was the time to kind of spread your wings and go elsewhere and and move into a different, you know, part of uh, the industry? There's a short and there's a long answer to that. The short answer is I burnt out. Like I was exhausted to the point of just being ill quite a bit. The long answer is I think it was time. Like I could... Aside from being just extremely, extremely tired and extremely, extremely um, burned out, I I do really think that in creative roles, there needs to be a changeover every couple of years. I could feel that it was like my ideas were becoming a bit stale, that I needed to or I wanted to do different types of programming. I wanted to be in touch with different types of people. I had already, you know, I was very, very proud of everything I'd done and working with these amazing people and being allowed onto that stage like not necessarily imposter syndrome but the feeling of belonging I mean I was ready to be heckled for not actually being British every time I stepped onto the BFI stage not gonna lie so I felt incredibly privileged to have been able to do so much stuff in in such a short time but I felt like it was it was time for someone else to come in with fresher ideas it's it's very easy to after you've been somewhere for for a while and after you've kind of proven yourself and after you you kind of have um, more freedom to do stuff that you want to do it's very easy to fall into patterns and 
I never want to fall into patterns and I never want to just fall back on previous ideas that I've had or previous ways of working or falling into that pattern of this is how we do it just because we've always done it, even for my own way. So I I made the choice to leave and I, I went somewhere else. But also I just wanted to, for better or for worse, do more things at the same time. And sometimes that's not that's not entirely possible when you have a full-time job that's that demanding. Yeah, of course. And was there anything about that transition that was particularly difficult? I mean, the fear of being freelance, always. <laughs> I think because I've always been so interested in so many different things, but all of them coming back to the one central thing, which is film. It's for better or for worse. I've just always wanted to do too many things at once. I was I was afraid of going freelance, of course. But I did actually go into another full-time job after I quit the BFI, but I went freelance very shortly after that, and I probably should have. I know I realized that and now in hindsight, I needed a rest and I needed to start thinking. I'd already done so many things within an institutional frame. I wanted to be able to prove to myself that I could do them for myself. So it, there's a very there's always a period in your life where you can allow yourself to take risks. And it's not like I have anything to fall back on. I don't have, I'm not independently wealthy. I don't have family money. I don't have family connections in the industry. There's, if if I mess up, I mess up by myself, for myself. But there were so many things I wanted to do. I wanted, my, I wanted to give myself the opportunity to do them. And it would be so easy to stay in a nice, good, very rewarding and very respected full-time job in an institution that I loved very, very deeply, probably too deeply, and continue on that path and become comfortable and I never wanted to become comfortable. I wanted to be challenged at all times. Yeah, absolutely. I have a deep respect for that as well. It's not probably not an easy decision to make. I mean, you, you touched on it there. You said you, you've always wanted to do maybe too much for better or worse. <laughs> and I mean, the thing that I was most concerned about um, was fitting in everything, um, you know, into this interview that you have done because your career does kind of span many disciplines. And so I'm wondering, you know, when you went freelance, did you have a sense of what you wanted to focus on or pursue? And, and how did you go about manifesting that or creating those opportunities for yourself? I wanted to, I kind of went back to, what I originally wanted to do, I wanted to write. <laughs> I wanted to write. I wanted to talk about film, which is a lot of the stuff that I was doing anyway, but you were consumed by many other things when you're working for someone else. So I wanted to try working for myself. It's always something that I kind of had in the back of my mind and I kind of felt that it was probably the right thing for me. So again, give it a try. And if it doesn't work out, you can always go back to full-time employment, hopefully. <laughs> I wanted to write and I wanted to do more broadcasting things. I want to say broadcast, I mean proper broadcast and also podcasting, which is also something that I was always obsessed with. I tried my hand at while I was at the BFI and both co-hosting The Bigger Picture and also putting on kind of live podcast events quite a lot. So that was kind of another niche within live events and programming that I, I created for myself. Again, and I was really interested and I thought there was a lot of, there was a very big future in that. And I was very fascinated and enamored with podcasters as personalities. And I wanted to, to be able to have the freedom that comes with being freelance and with not kind of being responsible for representing uh, an organization to, to be able to write and to talk about things in my own voice and to be able to collaborate with more people, really. And did you set out like a plan for yourself? You know, like how this is how much money I need to make, like at the end of every month. Logistically, were you thinking kind of in that way? 
Yeah. I mean, I think this is something really important for everyone to understand. And I definitely don't think that we talk about money in this industry as openly as we should. But yeah, like I mentioned before, I'm entirely independent. So you kind of have to think with your head a bit and kind of plan in advance as to how much money do I need to live to survive? How much money would I like to make? What are the gigs that I need to take for money? What are the different revenue streams that I can generate? How can I work with people that I've worked with before? How can I use the connections that I've had already based on previous stuff? Do I need to, you know, completely try to eliminate the shame of asking for opportunities as well? Putting yourself out there, emailing people and saying, oh, by the way, I'm freelance now. I'm doing this, this and that. I'd be interested in doing this or whatever, or pitching ideas, be that to publications or to production companies or making stuff happen for yourself, by yourself, learning on the go and really there, there is kind of a, a financial and, a, and a, a practical element to that, which is we all kind of have to live. And I like, I like having a roof over my head and having food in my belly. So how much will that cost me? And how much do I need to make? And how much uh, can I afford to spend this month? Or how much do I need to make this month? Or are there particular peak periods for the sort of work that I do that I can sort of work around? So if I do a lot of um, hosting or interviewing during award season, does that mean that I can sort of chill and focus on other projects in the in the other months? Like, how do I rebalance my life and my income based on this new freelance situation how many recurring gigs do i need to to make how many pieces do i need to publish a month or pitch a month in order to be able to um continue with with my life or save money or whatever else it's it, obviously it's very romantic and very pretty everything that i've been talking about in terms of ambitions and wanting to do to do kind of um writing and broadcasting but then you kind of have to look at things practically as well and be like well while i'm focusing on this how much money do i need to make and how can, do i make that money to be able to give myself the headspace and the time time is the most important thing to focus on this thing because nobody's you know waiting for my takes on 90s films (laughs) with beta breath so (laughs) so how do i how do i give myself the time to do that while uh i also like to get my sourdough bread for my favorite bakery that's not (laughs) as as cheap as i would like it to be (laughs) totally and i mean you bring out the point of time there and i'm always fascinated with how people kind of organize their days i guess because there's such a not stigma but you know we we just assume that people work you know the same hours the kind of nine to five nine till six you know is that the structure that you work to or is it much more flexible you know do you kind of strike while the iron's hot and um, manage your time differently I think it's such a personal thing and I think one of the wisest things especially as a freelancer you can do is figure out what schedule works for you and also how to respond and make use of that freedom that you have as a freelancer in in order to really try to get that balance that you need and you know like I mentioned kind of there's there's certain types of work that are perhaps a little bit more um, mechanical or demand less um, less headspace or demand kind of less thinking time and that's fine and perhaps you're doing many many different things so kind of in my working week I can go from spending an entire day not talking to anyone just editing and just playing around with audio to spending an entire day on zoom meetings or interviewing people or doing kind of more public facing stuff it also depends on how you're feeling at the same uh, you know depending on your deadlines and workload and stuff like that how you're feeling what you think that you're 
best your time is best spent doing that particular day and also what the demands are but then it's it's the balance of well right what do i need how do i work best do i work best in the morning so i work best in chunks of time kind of very very intensely or do i need kind of breaks every couple of hours do i need to go out do i need to exercise etc and part of kind of what i've really learned from lockdown is how to respond better to my own um not mood but where i am on that day so if i know i have to deliver something by a deadline then i kind of work backwards from that but it's also if if i'm if i'm kind of feeling less energetic in the morning then i'm going to be working in the evening or till late and vice versa if i really need to go for a walk then i'm going to go for a walk and clear my head and if i need like to spend two days just not looking at my phone and finishing off a piece or viewing something to write um to write a piece or to write a proposal then i'm gonna give myself the space to do that as opposed to so it's much more of you organizing yourself around yourself as opposed to responding to people demanding your time there's a powerful thing in sort of realizing you're the kind of master of your own schedule i guess or like you know like someone when someone asks for your time i for a long time just thought i automatically had to give it you know because they were asking it of me as opposed to being like actually I don't have the time like or actually I can't do that today can you do tomorrow and I think there's something quite freeing about suddenly realizing that you have the, the control over that oh god you're so right yeah absolutely it takes you it takes you a while I think as a freelancer as well to realize that you do actually have the power to say no or the power to negotiate because the fear of never getting work again is always in the back of your brain so but once you realize that actually you I think you start enjoying the work a lot more you start to enjoy the freedom of being able to be the master of your time and your schedule so much more Mm, yeah absolutely and how do you protect your your creativity and your energy you know if like as you say if you're not feeling particularly energetic of a morning or particularly inspired you know besides going for a walk is there anything else that you do to reset and kind of reinvigorate it's a very good question honestly uh i've discovered the the power of uh working out quite a bit to reset my brain and it's something i started doing while i was still at the bfi i found this like very weird um uh, almost always empty pool and I think there's something about exercise that helps me it's because you just have to focus on the thing that you're doing then you you physically cannot look at your phone you cannot be distracted by whatsapp messages or emails you just have to get through however long you're doing the thing for and just concentrate on that and then you're done and because of that very being very very present in something that's also quite physical you know where most of my day is spent behind on behind a desk watching watching a screen or watching films or writing or something so it's also being kind of going back and doing something physical working out going for a walk it really helps center my head and it helps me to just think about the thing that I'm doing in that particular moment as opposed to thinking about 17 different things that are floating around in my head in different stages of prioritizing yeah I completely agree like yeah you literally can't take your phone in a swimming pool so it's perfect <laughs> and obviously you you mentioned there that you co-hosted the BFI um the bigger picture podcast and you have your own podcast called the final girls and I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about yeah the shows that you host and what you get from I guess that experience of podcasting you know why why that's something that you have such a passion for oh my god okay I just oh, I'm gonna gush I love podcasts so much I've loved them for like a decade and I was so annoying at the BFI because I kept trying to get, to get everyone to listen to stuff and it was I think the more I think about it I think the thing that I love the more about podcasting more than any other medium of criticism or conversation about film or culture is the space is the fact that you can talk for an hour you can talk for two there is no limitation 
there's only the limitation that you know that you give yourself and i like to keep the the final ghost one and the next supremes one which is about american horror story it's it's the fact that it you give it as much space as the conversation demands as the film demands. So if you go on for two hours talking about something because there's enough to say about it, and then you go on for two hours, it's not as rigid. And, you know, I'm not capable of yet of doing uh, the the style of podcasting that I would aspire to do. But I find them also incredibly creative, uh, the possibilities of what you can do with sound design, of what you can do with clips and with editing, aside from just the conversational ones. Um, the ones that I gravitate towards are always conversational. They're, I and also really, really like the fact that they're a world where new voices can flourish voices that might not necessarily be propped up by the industry in the same way as um, or propped up by organizations or media platforms. It's people who may have insane amounts of knowledge and have a lot of things to say and say it eloquently and generously and may have just for, you know, for whatever reasons, not had or accessed those platforms. And those platforms can be very scary and can be very difficult to access. So I think podcasting eliminates that barrier, both for audiences, for listeners, and for people who want to say something. You know, we, we all know how limiting sometimes opportunities are in in broadcasting or in journalism. So I'll go to the people who have something to say, as opposed to waiting for them to come to me. And is the style of podcast that you aspire to, yeah, the kind of, you know, serial or like nice white parents, you know, where it is more, I guess, collage and like, yeah, as you say, there's like much more material kind of coming in. Is that sort of your ambition? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The very, uh, the Kalina, uh, Karina Longworth School of Podcasting is kind of what I'm aspired to, uh, what I aspire to, or, you know, the Mermaid Palace style. I'm not talented enough to get there yet. Hopefully I can work with some producers who can do that it's it's the sensory and evocative style of sound design and of podcasting that i find really interesting and i haven't aside from perhaps uh you must remember this i haven't really heard that many culture podcasts that that managed to achieve that so it's something that i always got in the back of my mind or dolly parton's america also gorgeous beautiful yes oh my god that was great wasn't it? one of the best podcasts i've heard all year and i did not even know anything about Dolly before I listened to that. And I think it's just one of the best things I've heard. Yeah. And also just such a different lens, I thought, through which to kind of view her. So then, I mean, it would be remiss of me not to mention Underwire because um, you guys gave me my first live podcasting opportunity. And um, that was, yeah, last September, I want to say, although time feels time feels very amorphous at the moment. So I have no idea where we are. And so you you direct that festival. You took on the mantle that was kind of already created. And I'm kind of wondering how you got involved with that. And, you know, where is it at now? Like, what does your involvement with it look like at the moment? So I got involved with it um, as a volunteer of sorts in 2015. So I was looking kind of after the the program management. So I was essentially liaising with the filmmakers and the uh, And the people who were managing the festival at that point, it was sort of in between Chloe Trainer, who'd been uh, directing for a few years and um, and myself. And then it's a really, really quite simple story. Um, The then organizers took me up for a curry after the festival was done and they were like, would you like to take on the festival? And I... I already knew that I really want, I think because of working for Claire, I just, I found film festivals so exciting and so interesting and that being able to shape all of those things and 
the organizational nightmare than they are kind of really appeal to the the control freak and the organizing maniac the in me. In you. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. It's like a, it's a very sadomasochistic <laughs> endeavor, really. Uh, the amount of spreadsheets in running a festival is, mm, if you're into spreadsheets, delightful. I just, I also think that with underwear, when so when I got involved, it was very, it was quite small. It was like a weekend in Hackney Attic, which is kind of a top, uh, the the space on top of Hackney Picture House. It's not really a cinema, and I saw so much potential in it. I saw so much potential for it to become, this was way before Woman of the Movie Camera Summit, to become kind of a buzzy environment. I thought it's kind of, um, it's hard what's in the right place. The intention was really, was really, really positive. I thought the angle of kind of focusing on, on female talent across the crafts was really exciting. And I genuinely, I, I've always thought, and I still really, really think that short films is where the real talent and the really exciting storytelling is at. There's so I think it requires so much more rigor and drive to put together a short film to tell a story in a much more concise way. I think it's a space that allows filmmakers and creatives to experiment a lot more because the the pressures are wildly different. So I was just always really excited to see as much stuff as possible and like see new and discover new people, new filmmakers, new voices. When when I took it on, it was also a challenge for myself. It's like, can I step up into a role where I will need to lead something. I will need to take a project from the beginning and make it happen from from the start. Like I'm just given a couple of spreadsheets and this this kind of background information and what can I do with that? It was an exercise in creating a vision and a long-term strategy for it and also assembling a team, working with people, making a ton of mistakes, being responsible for um, the delivery of the whole thing. So kind of the production of stuff and not just the curation, not just the fun part. It was a lot of balancing of people's times, of my time, of people's egos, of people's interests, of the, the ambitions of the festival and what I thought it could become and how it could get to that point without losing its integrity and without losing its its key ethos. There was, you know, there was several decisions that I made really, really early on and things that I wanted to achieve by like, say, year three mark. And I was always kind of very much about kind of growing the festival to show as many films as possible without it becoming diluted, um, but always about that being experience first. So how are people experiencing the festival, especially the filmmakers? What are they getting from it? What are they, how are they meeting each other? How are they interacting with the audiences? So Again, all of these different questions, and I wanted to make them materialize in the form of the festival. And the more it grew, the more opportunities that I could have. So in a sense of I could create events that were a little bit more out there, that were kind of retrospectives of filmmakers that were on the on the verge of you know breaking out so kind of i did a retrospective arena young who i think you've interviewed on the on the podcast um and now she's a she's nominated for a bafta breakthrough like an amazing cinematographer did a retrospective of georgia paris's short films the year that she premiered mari so there was all of these different ideas that i had that were about spotlighting and supporting new and sort of mid-career talent and that were kind of that could then be materialized as events as part of the festival like doing the live podcast with you that were wider uh, and a bit more creative than than doing the short film programs but frankly short film programming is still so 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 
interesting and exciting to me because it's, it's it's essentially you know you get to play around with multiple films with themes you get to create this whole journey for the audience uh you know you get to take them through four five twelve films in a single 90 minute session and get to meet so many different people and see how they react to other work and one of the biggest compliments that the festival gets is when filmmakers and practitioners whose film screens say that they enjoy all the other films in the program and that i think kind of really speaks to the to the high level of submissions and of of curation of the festival is that it's always just about how good it is but also how does it fit uh, with the other films in the festival and one of the exciting things as well has always been seen what themes and topics have emerged from the submissions, because I never go into it um, thinking, I want to do a program about this. If I want to do a program about something specific, then I'll curate it as opposed to try to force a selection from that. It's been really interesting in the four years that I've been running it that you see these themes emerge from the submissions. So you kind of then see what creatives and filmmakers are thinking about in a particular moment in time. And that's always really exciting. So this year, the festival did not take place because of Corona. I'm still running it. It has been kind of on hiatus. So I'm now thinking and planning the any year-round events that we can do remotely and also the, the next year's edition. And then is there something that you consider to be the biggest learning curve of your career? You know, or something that you wish that you'd learn earlier? You know, you tell younger Anna. <laughs> I wish I had lost my fear of things a little earlier. I was always afraid that people were smarter, that people knew more, that people had more experience, that their way of doing things was the right way until I realized, and I remember when in the middle of a meeting, that actually everybody was kind of just winging it and my way of doing things had as much validity as someone else's and it wasn't necessarily right or wrong. It was, was it right or wrong for that particular project or for that particular idea? Yeah, I think that was a, that was a big moment where I just kind of started to be more fearless and embrace the things that I wanted to do and ask for them as well and go for those jobs that seem too big and put myself forward for things or even conquer certain fears that I had because I knew that they were necessary to conquer for myself if not for the particular job and that I had to write to be in those places. Having ideas and not having the the courage to articulate them or to just put them out there. And sometimes things get rejected. That's fine. A big part of it is also just realizing that you're not going to have great ideas all the time. And sometimes it's just not the right thing for that particular project or space. That's also fine. But also it's very easy to just take that very personally and be hit back by it and kind of take that as a as a way of kind of shutting down even more. But yeah, I think if I could tell younger Anna to just stop being afraid a little earlier on, which is ironic because everything we've been talking about is just me being very ballsy and very arrogant and just asking for things. But I was actually mostly terrified most of the time. When I stopped being afraid of being in those rooms is when I started actually really, really enjoying going for the things that I really wanted to do. And then finally, um, what is a film from a woman director that you think is a hidden gem? Uh, I actually screened this as part of Girlfriends and I discovered this film purely accidentally called me without you uh it's a film from so it's uh it's a film by sandra goldbachers who's a, a british filmmaker and it's got michelle williams and anna freeland in it. and it's basically about a toxic female friendship it's about a codependent friendship and it kind of looks at this uh, relationship between these two women throughout the years from when they're teenagers to when they're um in their 30s 
And it's one of the few films that I've seen that kind of tries to visualize and articulate both the highs and the lows of a deep, intense, uh, platonic female relationship. And I think it's it should be much more well-known than it is, um, not just because it's got kind of, you know, actresses who are now extraordinarily well-known and really, really accomplished, but because it's still one of those, I think it was be ahead of its time because it's a 2001 film and we're only just now mostly through television series starting to look at the the thorny and human aspects of being a woman as opposed to just the hashtag strong female lead, which is a whole nother conversation. But we're kind of this obsession with being perfect and likable and inspirational and empowered in every single sense. Um, everyone being human is a messy business. So being able to articulate that or visualize that, especially through something kind of as uh, complex and deep as a, as a friendship, uh, I think is really, really beautiful. So I really, really recommend that film. I think it's deeply underrated, as is Sandra's other film, The Governess, which is a whole nother thing. Um, and the other film that I wanted to recommend is Under Under the Skin, which is a Karine Adler's only film from 1997. And one of... Um, one of my happy, actually, the last woman with the movie camera event that I curated for the BFI before I left was this film. And I found Kareen and I got to interview her and talk to her about how much this film meant to me, which is one of those really geeky things that actually makes this job really, really worthwhile is just being able to talk to people who make your favorite films. Again, a British drama. And uh, it was, it's from the 90s and it's written and, and directed by Kareen and it stars Samantha Morton as a woman who is uh, grieving the death of her mother and also responding to that grief and, and processing that grief. And again, in really messy ways, you know, she she goes off the deep end. She um, She's exploring her sexuality very, very unapologetically. And she's... She's angry in so many ways. And it's just this fearless, just raw, powerful performance by Samantha Morton. And it's a film that, you know, it's it's available. It's on it's on Amazon Prime. It's on DVD. It's it's out there, but it's not as well known. And I think it's one of these kind of gems, especially by women directors in in the 90s of where they get to make one film and they never get to make a second one for a multitude of reasons. It's one of those very, very rare films, again, that allows a woman to, a female character, to really feel and explore and embrace the the messiness of her feelings and the messiness of grief and the messiness of her sexuality and kind of experimenting with things and responding to things and not all of them being pretty. Yeah, I think it toes that line between the empowerment you can feel, the yeah, the empowerment you can feel from embracing sexuality alongside the danger. Yeah, two incredible picks. Thank you so much, Anna. And thank you so much for your time today and for coming on the podcast. It's been every bit as good as I hoped it would be. So thank you so much. <laughs> oh, thank you. Oh, thank you so much for asking me. Thank you for downloading this episode of Best Girl Grip. You can find all my previous episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Acast. If you're interested in learning more about this particular field, I recommend digging out my interviews with Chloe Trainer and Dorota Leck. In the meantime, have a lovely week. Music